Well, good morning. <coughs> if you'd like to open up your Bibles, we're going to be starting there in Galatians, chapter 5. <coughs> if you've got something to write with, you might want to take some notes. There are lots of additional texts on the bottom of slides. And uh, this should prove to be a pretty good study. And if you were at the last um, sermon where we talked about um, salvation via knowledge, this is kind of a part two, in a sense, with a little bit different twist. In one word. Paul says there in Galatians chapter 5, what? All the law. How much of the law? All the law is fulfilled in one word. And then he gives us seven words. All the law is fulfilled in one word. What does he say? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's just point out the obvious, right? Like, Paul really wouldn't care that all the law is fulfilled in anything if the law didn't matter. Isn't that true? That's just sort of an aside. We're just going to make that very obvious point that he wouldn't care that it was fulfilled in any one word if, there, if it didn't matter at all. Isn't that right? Okay. All the law, all the law is fulfilled in one word. Now, we understand that this concept of loving your neighbor really addresses the last six of the Ten Commandments. Isn't that true? From honoring your parents right on through not coveting. More than it addresses kind of the first four. But yet he says all of the law is fulfilled in loving your neighbor as yourself. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? How's that so? Paul elaborates on this idea a little bit more there in Romans chapter 13. When he says this, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is what? The fulfillment of the law. Obviously, that one word to which Paul was referring in Galatians chapter 5 is the word what? Love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Loving your neighbor as yourself fulfills the law. Love does no harm to a neighbor, and therefore love is that fulfillment. Verse 8 of Romans chapter uh, 13 says this, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another 
has fulfilled the law. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus says this, to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all burnt offering and sacrifices. And then Paul adds there in verse 11, in front of us, he says this, and do this knowing what? That now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Certainly that was in that was important in Paul's day, isn't that true? In fact, today, my salvation is nearer than it was yesterday. And the day before that, that's true. But yet, there's a, a wider swath of meaning here. Paul is saying, look it, the second coming of Christ is nearer than it was when you first believed. Right? And he's saying, look it, it's high time we awake out of sleep, and we understand that especially during this day and age. As we see what's going on in the world around us, it is high time we awake out of sleep. Amen? Jesus himself tells a parable. Because we might ask the question, as this young man who came to Jesus did, this lawyer, asking that question, well then, who constitutes my neighbor? Right? Remember that? Jesus answers in Matthew chapter 25. He says this, I was hungry and you gave me food, thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in, naked and you clothed me, sick and you visited me, a prisoner and you came to me. And surely I say to you, look at this, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to who? To me. Do you realize what this is saying? God so identifies himself with those who are in need that as we do it to someone or he identifies with you, someone does for us, God takes that personally. Right? If you did it for them, you did it for him. If they did it for you, they did it for him. And the reverse of that is also true, is it not? If we don't do it for them, then we, because he points that out, didn't do it for him. God so identifies himself with his people that to do something for someone else, he takes personally as if you did it for him. Amen? Remember that lawyer who said, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells that parable. You're familiar with it, right? About the three 
the two Jews and the Samaritan. And then Jesus asked the question, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him that had fallen by the thieves? And he responds, and he says, um, I guess he who showed the kindness, right? And then Jesus says, go and what? Do likewise. Who is my neighbor? The one who's in need. Paul defines love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love suffers long, and it's kind. It doesn't envy. It's not puffed up. It's not what? Puffed up. It doesn't parade itself. It doesn't behave rudely, nor seek its own. Neither is it provoked or thinking evil. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. And then it says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love what? Never fails. In one word, Paul said, all the law is fulfilled in one word. Who is my neighbor? The person in need? Who is my neighbor? The one who lives next door? The one on the street corner? The one in the store? What about the one in the pew? Right? Sometimes we find it a little harder to be long-suffering and kind with those who are closest to us. Isn't that kind of a weird sort of paradox? Those with whom we're related, those with whom we interact the most, we find ourselves a little sh shorter on the patient scale, right? On the mercy scale, on the scale of understanding, and sometimes even the desire to help. Who is my neighbor? Let's go digging a little bit deeper. And let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians, where we read chapter 13 from, but this time we're going to go a few chapters earlier to chapter 8. And we're going to take a little stroll through this passage, which I feel is probably one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning there in verse 1. Look what he says. Now concerning, what does he say? Things offered to idols. Now I'm going to put forth the idea right now, right ahead of the place, right, that this is not the topic 
It's only the catalyst to the topic. You'll see that as we dig. This is not the subject. It was just something that was going on there, right, in Corinth. Many things are going on there. If you're familiar with the whole entire 1 Corinthians, there are lots of things going on there. But this was one of the things that was going on there. And Paul's using this subject, this dispute, this argument, this, this lack of understanding and lack of love, really, as the catalyst to a deep conversation. Let's follow it through. He says, now concerning things offered to idols, and then there's this interesting little pronoun. What is it? We. We. And we what? We know. We know that we all have Knowledge. Now, there's that, there's that number from last time. What is that word? Gnosis. We all have a gnosis, right? But knowledge has this tendency to do what? Puff up. Who does it puff up? Us. Right? Knowledge has a tendency to puff up. In fact, if we were to think of a modern expression, we might say, knowledge has a tendency to give someone a, a big head. Some people's heads get so big, they have trouble fitting through the doorway. Right? Knowledge can puff us up. Make us think that I know something you don't know or I'm smarter than you, or I'm in the possessor of great wisdom, or whatever the deal is, right? Knowledge has a tendency to puff us up, but instead, by contrast, this word love, what does it do? It edifies. Now the word there, that's the Greek word that's translated into edify, is this word oiko domio. The root word to domio is demo. A demonstration? Right? The word demo means to build up. The word oikos is the Greek word for house. So in other words, while knowledge gives an individual a big head, love, by contrast, seeks to build houses. You get that? To build others up. While knowledge simply puffs ourselves up. Paul continues a couple verses later, because he's giving some, some explanation in 2 and 3. Let's jump to verse 4. <coughs> Therefore, he says, concerning the things offered to idols, we know that an idol is what? We. Where's Paul? 
He's included, is he not? He's in that group called we. We know knowledge gives you a big head, but love seeks to edify. And it's kind of interesting in that very first verse because later we'll see whether or not whom he's writing to actually knew that. Contrast between knowledge and love. But then he says this, exactly. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is what? It's nothing in the world, and that there's no other God but one. An idol is nothing. A couple verses later, he says this. However... There is not in everyone that knowledge. We know an idol is what? Nothing. But there are some people who don't know that the idol is what? Nothing. In fact, they think the idol is what? Something. You get it? I put that down in a little math equation for you. Something, let's just call that a one, right? That's the food offered to, multiplied onto an idol, which they think is something, equals something. One times one is One, right? Something, the food, offered unto something, the idol, then becomes something. What is that something? Defiled, tainted, unclean. Paul said the idol was what? Nothing. But they think the idol is something, so therefore the food that's been offered onto that something somehow becomes something. Now let's read on. It says this, there's not in everyone that same knowledge, but they have, what is that? A consciousness for the idol. And then when they eat it, they eat it as if It's offered to something. You see that? And then it says their conscience, their what? Their conscience. What is a conscience? Do you have a conscience? Who's usually triggering that conscience? The Holy Spirit? Right? In the world we live in today, the world wants you to feel that the only reason you have a conscience for anything is because somebody imposed upon you or impressed upon you that that particular thing was wrong. You see that? 
and thus to get away from that conscience, that feeling that something was wrong, that your parents or your culture or somebody else impressed upon you, the way to get away from that culture is to get away from those people. To hang out with people who feel that it's okay like you do. In fact, more than that, to stop those bad people who keep trying to tell you that it's not good. Because conscience obviously only comes from inside yourself as a result of your nurture from the people around you. But we as Christians, we know that that's not the truth. We know that a conscience is something that has been gifted to us from God. We know that a conscience is something that God speaks through trying to get our attention. We know that our conscience, indeed that's what the Greek word means, is our guide to morality, telling us via the Holy Spirit what is right and what is wrong. Now look up there what it says. It says, their conscience being what? Weak. Why was their conscience weak? In fact, in Romans, Paul says that the contrast between these and the previous people who knew was the weak versus the strong. We who are strong, Paul says, ought to bear with the scruples of those who are weak. Strong versus weak. What was their weakness versus strength? Do you think it was they were weak because they lacked some knowledge? I mean, the strong are the ones who know that the idol is what? Nothing. And the weak are those who believe that the idol is what? Something. Is it knowledge? Do they simply need to come to the place of strength by coming to the place of realization that the idol is really what? Nothing. Is that the problem? What is their weakness? What is it that's defiled? Their conscience. Their conscience is defiled. And when you have a defiled conscience, you ever had a defiled conscience? Huh? You've had a defiled conscience? Why did you have a defiled conscience? Yeah, but, but, but why? I'm not, you don't have to tell me a specific sin. I'm just, <laughs> <coughs> just letting you know that up front, Roddick, before you, know, you stand up and make confession to everybody. <coughs> What's that? Maybe. Maybe we accepted lies. Have you had a defiled conscience? Usually that defiled conscience is the result of what? Not necessarily. What's that? Sin. In other words, I have a conviction 
right? That something is wrong, but I did it anyways, right? And then afterwards, now I have a what? A defiled conscience. My conscience is, is saying, hey, you shouldn't have done that. Have you ever experienced that? I hope you continue to experience that. You get that? To not experience that is a problem. In fact, I think it goes back to the children's story. You understand what I'm saying? If you have no conscience for things that are right and wrong, then your heart is petrified. The closer we get to Christ, and he gives us that heart of flesh, the more conscience, conscious we become of what actually qualifies as wrong and what actually qualifies as right. This man wasn't ignorant. It says there that he was convicted. You see that? He was convicted that the idol was what? Something. And therefore, food that had been offered to that was something. And therefore, the food was defiled. And then when he consumed contrary to his what? His conscience, his conviction. That's what defiled his conscience. To him that knows to do right and does it not, to him it is what? It is a sin. Is it possible that something might be a sin for one person and not for you? Is that possible? I mean, there are certain sins that we know that, right, to lie is, is wrong for everybody. Isn't that true? But is it possible that something might be a conviction of someone else and not a conviction of yours? Okay. Okay, very good. But something can be something can be a sin for someone. And let's say this. Do you think it's possible? Let's let's unpack it a little further back. Do you think that there's something it's possible for something to be a temptation for somebody that's not a temptation for you? It's easier to see that way, isn't it? And if it's a temptation to them, but it's not a temptation to you then when you were to do that thing, you're not doing something that's a temptation. In fact, you're not necessarily even doing something that's even a conviction. You get it? <clears throat> but it being a temptation to them means that it's also a 
conviction for them. You see that? We live in a world where a temptation to somebody might not be your temptation, or your temptation might not be their temptation. Thus, what constitutes a sin to you might not constitute a sin to them. Right? Let's read a little further. Remember the verse back there in 4 says, we know that an idol is what? Nothing in the world. In verse 8, Paul says this, but food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. And people love that verse who want to just say, I can eat anything I want. See, Paul said. It's in context. You have to keep things in context. And he's not talking about clean versus unclean foods. He's talking about what? Specifically, food offered idols. That's what he's talking about. Right? But look at here. We know that the idol is nothing in the world. And our little math equation then turns from something, the food, offered to what? Nothing, of course, zero. Equals what? Nothing. Everybody remember their algebra well enough and their mathematics to know that one times zero is zero? Right? I know you wanted to forget that, some of you. Right? Something times nothing equals nothing. But remember, there wasn't in everyone that same gnosis that same knowledge. And then Paul gives a warning. And I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that the pronoun changed. It changed from we to you. Where's Paul? Not in the you. Paul just stepped out. We are together in our knowledge. We know an idol's nothing. But you are alone in your liberty? Hmm. Ecclesia is the Greek word. It means not just liberty. It's only translated liberty here once, as a matter of fact, of the many times that it's used. And it means to have a privilege. Beware lest somehow this privilege of yours. Sometimes it's translated strength based on the context. Beware somehow this strength of yours. Most of the time it's translated power or authority. Beware somehow that this power or this authority of yours, you get it? What do he say? Knowledge puffs up. 
You see, there were those who, recognizing that the idol was nothing, thought that that gave them the freedom to do as they pleased. You ever known somebody that was tempted by something that wasn't a temptation to you? How did you respond to that? Was it, look, just get over it. Would you do that thing in front of them that was a temptation to them that they stumbled and struggled with? Not if you love them. That was the response. Even the world who professes not Christ would consider anyone intentionally doing something in front of someone with which they struggled to be less than love. Isn't that true? Somebody has a problem with alcohol. Let's offer them a drink. Let's drink around them. Let's make fun of their propensity. Even in the world, without Christ, they'd be like, that's wrong, man. Even though in the world, they often do make fun of such things. Because we like to make fun of those who are weaker than us in our minds. Because it makes us seem stronger. It kind of puffs us up makes us feel better. Isn't that right? Look what it says. Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a what? A stumbling block to those who are what? We're back to that word weak again. How are they weak? Is, are they weak simply in their knowledge? No, they're not weak in the knowledge. Actually, they think the idol is what? Something they have a conviction, don't they? Are they weak in their knowledge? Where's their weakness? Living in harmony with their conscience. That's their weakness. In fact, what do we call that thing when something comes along that kind of prods us against our conscience? I think temptation, we call that a temptation. You ever given in to temptation before? What's the problem when you give in to temptation? What's that? Yeah. Obviously you have a, a, a weak Resolve. What does the Bible mean when it says Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat? You got it? What does that mean he purposed in his heart? He just made up his mind? Is that what it means? 
Have you ever just made up your mind? Have you ever purposed in your heart that you were never going to do some certain thing again? God, I purpose. I'll never do that again. And you find out that that promise was like ropes of sand. It wasn't Daniel's resolve, was it? I mean, there's, it plays a part, does it not, to make a choice? I purpose, Lord, that I never want to do that again. That's good. But Daniel purposed in his heart. There was, there was a spiritual resolve, that's true, but there was also a spiritual fortitude, a spiritual strength. You see, this person who's weak, what do they lack? Spiritual fortitude. Where does that spiritual fortitude come from? From God. It comes from being close to God. Isn't that right? Being in God's presence so that when temptation comes my way, it's not my fortitude, but it's His fortitude. It's not my strength, it's his strength. What was wrong with this person? What made them weak? What made them weak is that when temptation came their way, which is contrary to their conviction, they had no spiritual fortitude. No ability, and one might even add, probably no desire to avoid the temptation. You ever been that way? Temptation comes your way and you find some excuse. Right? Has that excuse ever been people around you? Let's read on. For if anyone, there's that pronoun again, what? You. If anyone sees you, does that mean that you've seen them? No, it just means that they saw you. Right? If anyone sees you who have knowledge, you have that gnosis, eating in the idol's temple, will not the what? Conscience of him who is weak be what? Uh-oh, wait a minute. I think we've seen that number before. Oh, there it is. Remember earlier the word that was translated edification? Here it's translated to be emboldened. He's looking at you, and he begins to build a house. That house isn't built on his conviction. The house is built on your example. He begins to build a house. His conscience builds a house. His conscience says, well, if pastor can do it, so can I. 
If the elder can do it, so can I. If the deacon can do it, so can I. If the Sabbath school teacher can do it, so can I. If that other lay person that I look up to can do it, so can I. I'm looking for anybody to be an excuse. Because my conscience is what? It's weak. My resolve is weak. The temptation comes my way, and I'm like, hey, if they can eat there, so can I. But the problem, the difference between you and them doing it is that they have a conviction. But Paul isn't warning them. He's warning you. Look what he's saying. He's saying, if anyone sees you having knowledge, eating in the idol's temple, will not his conscience be built up, build a house? His weak conscience is built up, and that house is being built on what? Sand. The wise man built his house upon the... The foolish man built his house on the sand. That house is being built on the sand. But his conscience, because he saw you and he saw your example, now he's emboldened to do the thing contrary to his conscience and to eat that thing offered to idols. And because of your gnosis that has a tendency to do what? Puff us up. Because of your gnosis, but it's more than just your gnosis. It's the gnosis, the liberty that led to your what? Your practice. Because of your example. The way you chose to look at your freedom. That's their problem. It's not mine. They just need to get over it. That sounds like love, doesn't it? Because of your knowledge shall the weak brother, weak in what? Spiritual resolve, spiritual fortitude. The weak brother, what's he going to happen to him? He's going to perish. You know what that word means? Destruction. It's talking about the end. They're going to lose their salvation. That one for whom Christ died. What's Paul saying? He's saying we have an obligation to those around us. That's what he's saying. You have an obligation to those around you. Our flesh tends to interpret as that's not my problem. That's their problem. It's not a temptation to me, although it might be a temptation to them. Right? They just need to get over it. And then we go out in our so-called perception of liberty and we do that thing that casts a stumbling block of offense before those who are weak, and they fall prey to the temptation, and as a result of falling prey to that temptation, they actually what? 
carry. Paul's not done. He says this. But when you thus, what's that word? Sin. When you sin against the brethren, when you sin against your sister, worse yet, you sin against one of these little ones. Remember Jesus? Saying it would be better that a millstone would be tied around your neck than you would offend one of these little ones. We often don't think of the little ones necessarily. They're watching. They're paying attention. Maybe mom and dad have taught them some certain thing. And they're looking for someone around them that they can admire who might give them an example contrary to what mom and dad have taught. And maybe in harmony with their own desires. Do you get it? I have a child like that. He's now considerably older. And a church member did just that. You know, oftentimes, people who are looking for excuses, they'll take something far further than you ever would. You get that? And that's what happened with my child. The church member said, oh, your parents just a little too strict concerning that thing, not knowing that it was an identified weakness of my child. And thus, I was steering them away from that thing that was a temptation to them. And today, they've gone far further with it than that church member ever would have gone. This is somewhat personal. You get it? This is very, very important. We have an obligation to each other, not just to ourselves. Look what it says. But when you sin against the brethren and you wound their what? Their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, Paul concludes, if food makes my brother to stumble, what's the pronoun? Paul's back in the game, and you are out. You get it? We're together in our knowledge, Paul says. You are alone in your application of that knowledge. 
and I am alone in my application of that knowledge. You are alone because you have taken the liberty because knowledge puffs up. I am alone because I recognize that love rather seeks to do what? Lift up. You see, love looks at that weak brother or sister and says, or little one and says, let me not offend in any way. Right? Paul says in Romans chapter 14, he says this as he builds on this same idea from 1 Corinthians 8. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in my brother's way. Yet if my brother is grieved because of my food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Ah, it's just talking about food. Verse 1 and 2 of Romans 15 say, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Again, Paul emphasizes this idea in verse 20 of Romans 14. Do not destroy the work of God. The what? The work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for a man who eats with what? Guess what that word offense is? Conscience. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which my brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. In Acts chapter 24, Paul says this, I myself always strive to make to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. I strive to have a conscience without offense towards who? God and man. That's love. In 1 Timothy, he, he counsels the young preacher, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Remember Romans 13? Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the what? Nor do anything. Love bears all things. Love never fails. Right? It suffers long. Love says this, 
that person, that brother, that sister, that little one, is more important than me or that thing. You get it? We who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of those who are weak and not please ourselves. Here's kind of the layout of 1 Corinthians 8. Those three major pronouns. The persuasions that each one of those ones have. The principle that they held to. The practice that each has. The prejudice. And then, the consequence. Notice that Paul didn't have any prejudice. Why? Because the brother was more important than his thing. Does that make sense? Let's, as we finish, let's circle back around right where we started. For all the law is fulfilled in what? One word. What is that word? Love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. God so identifies himself with you, with me, with our neighbor, that to love your neighbor as yourself is to love him. Amen? Praise the Lord. In one word. Let's sing a song together, shall we?